You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. On this podcast, we're going to talk about some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place and provide inspiration for others. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires everyone. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you meet here. We all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. Welcome back to the Make Meaning Podcast. With me today is Reverend Faith Fowler, who is both the pastor of Cass Community United Methodist Church and the executive director of Cass Community Social Services, a nonprofit agency that provides food, housing, medical, mental health, and employment programs for people living in areas of concentrated poverty. She has held these positions since 1994. Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast, Reverend Fowler. Thanks for having me, Lynn. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. I'm so inspired by all of your work. And I wonder if you could begin by sharing with our listeners a little bit about what uh, CAST Community Social Services is all about. Sure. So uh, CAST began as a part of the CAST Methodist Church in what was the CAST Corridors, now referred to as Midtown. Mm -hmm. It uh, began doing ministries, if you will, during the Great Depression with a a soup kitchen that has never stopped. It actually exhausted its only endowment account to begin the soup kitchen. Oh, wow. And over the the years, we've been feeding every single day since then. uh, We currently produce 700,000 meals a year, so a lot of food. <laughs> oh, that's impressive. But, that's amazing. Well, a lot of really good people help us get it accomplished. And, and then over time, the, the church and then ultimately the nonprofit began other programs for people who were poor and or homeless, uh, folks who were being left behind in a variety of ways. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. So I wanted to ask you about something um, that you had said in the pre-interview. You talked about how you admire people who devote their lives to advancing justice. And I love Mm -hmm. that concept. Um, And I wanted to know, um, in your vision, especially in this day and age, you know, what is what does justice look like to you? How do we how do we define what justice really is? Mm. So sort of the tagline of uh, CAS is fighting poverty, creating opportunity, building community. And that creating opportunity ties into justice for me rather neatly that that everybody may have different skills and abilities and interests, but everybody should have a, the same opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. To succeed, to have a quality life, to, to have dignity and respect, to make a difference. And, and that I don't know. It's part and parcel of justice. Um, when I think of the big issues that are um, looming over us today, it's uh, the income inequality and asset inequality and mass incarceration. I could, I could go on and on, but yeah. all of them really at, at basic, at the basic level are about human dignity and human opportunity. Sure. Absolutely. And so tell me a little bit about what inspired your calling to this work. I'd like to hear a little bit about your journey. <laughs> I heard it was good pay. <laughs> <laughs> and a good sense of humor. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So so growing up, uh, I, I never met a woman minister. I never heard a woman preach. So um, it, it's really a bit of a, 
uh, a mystery how how it all came together. I, I felt called in junior high school. I went to see uh, our youth pastor at that time and told him I was feeling called to ministry, and he told me I was wrong. <laughs> and and so and so yeah, there you have it. So I never mentioned it again until after I was done with college. Quite frankly, I thought, well, if the minister knows I'm wrong, I'm wrong, right? Um, and a lot of people have said, do you think that's because you were a girl or a woman? I don't. I think I, I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I was sure. a fairly introverted kid, and, and he probably thought, you know, you don't have what it takes to be speaking or interacting with people all the time. And I continue to be introverted. People are sometimes surprised by that, but huh. I'm quite content at home with a book and, and a fire and a dog, you know? Yeah, I can um, relate to that. Definitely. It's just, the the job calls things out of you that uh, don't come naturally, and there you have it. Sure. So, uh, finished college. Uh, wanted to go to seminary. Didn't have any money to go to seminary. Worked at uh, both uh, Methodist Children's Village with abused kids and and a small suburban church. And the pastor went on vacation and asked me to preach. And the rest, as they say, is history. I, I loved it. I invited my parents to come here, and. Um, I just knew it was meant to be. So after a couple of years, I went out to Boston for school, and I've been in Detroit ever since. Wonderful. So what do you love most about what you do? Um, I'd love to hear just some of the high points of, of, your, of your work. Well, in terms of being a minister, I, I love being there at those milestone moments in people's lives and family lives and individual lives when when a baby is born, when a baby is baptized, when a couple decides to get married, when, you know, uh, uh, somebody gets a new job, somebody gets a new house, somebody gets a new beginning, mm-hmm. e- even even at the moment of death. And I wasn't sure I'd like that so much, but I do. It's such a high honor to be included yes. as people are making the transition that... Um, that it really is a, a special, sacred moment. It is. So in terms of ministry, that's what I like, the, the wide scope and the invitation into those intimate moments where people um, aren't, aren't worried about things that don't matter. You know, yeah. they're, they're only concerned about ultimate things. Sure. Um, in terms of the nonprofit work, I'm always excited if we can solve a problem for somebody that ultimately can solve it for for many people at at the same time, sure. or, or at least to be able to use the same sort of solution. Yeah. So that's what excites me most there. It's interesting, you know. You say um, in those intimate moments when um, you know it's only the big things that matter. It's it's not the mm-hmm. superficial or. Um, the temporary right. things. And you know, one of the things that I've spent a lot of my life um, pondering, writing about, um, putting out there in the world is, is how people find meaning in the everyday. And so I wonder um, what you might say to our listeners about how they find their purpose or make meaning um, in what are basically all of us very ordinary lives. You know, how do we find that meaning in the moments? Uh, what advice would you have for our listeners? <laughs> so I'm an ordained person. I'm I'm always going to have an answer like um, trying to figure out what God wants you to to do with your life, to do with your resources, your time, your your intellect, your emotions, your uh, personality. Um, and and I think more often than not, God works in the ordinary. You, sure. you you wrote the book about sacred bread. Well, what's more ordinary than bread, right? And oh, yet, yeah. that's exactly where we find 
um, the divine. And um, mm-hmm. so, so I think if you're waiting for a burning bush or a rainbow in the sky <laughs> or, or the Red Sea to part, you may go your whole life and never have that experience. And yet, I don't know, a, a sunrise, a sunset, a uh, Niagara Falls. I, I, a lot of it for me is in nature, which yes. is funny because I spend most of my life surrounded by concrete. So <laughs> when I can get to an open sky where where I can actually see the stars, and um, I'm reminded that that life is so much bigger than me. That God has such grander purposes than than my everyday you know calendar. Um, and so that's that's what I try and do. I try and escape for a moment here and there to to be grounded um in what's divine what's what's bigger than me yeah more yeah. important than me that's you know? beautiful it, it's interesting you know um as a business owner and I've worked for myself for 20 years which is is great and scary at the same time and um mm. i remember somebody said to me once you just do the work in front of you and the rest will take mm-hmm. care of itself. Because if you worry about, you know, will there be work down the road, you're getting too far away from what is and and what is real. And if you just take care of what's right in front of you, there will always be something to take care of, um, which yeah. I think is really true. And so you just have to put your nose to the grindstone and, and do what you can to make a difference. Absolutely. Right. So sure. I, I want to talk with you a little bit about your publishing. So I know that you founded mm-hmm. um, Cass Community Publishing House in 2014. And I'd like mm-hmm. to hear a little bit about um, this this sort of endeavor into publishing, um, what you've written or published or both, and, and mm-hmm. sort of what, um, what that experience is like for you. <laughs> Well, uh, a mutual friend, David Crum, approached me and said, uh, how about starting a publishing house? And um, I told him no. Said <laughs> 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 I was busy enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then he, he, he reframed it and said, um, you know, there are five or six major publishing houses in the United States, and, and most of them, most people don't have access to. And yet there are so many wonderful voices out there that, that need uh, a microphone or a megaphone or some sort of phone so that people will hear the less known stories. Uh-huh. Not less important, but less known. And, sure. and I thought, well, well, that sort of fits into who we are at CAS. Sure. There are clearly uh, women writers, minority writers, uh, foreign-born writers, incarcerated writers, there are people with stories that often just never get told and never get heard, and and perhaps we should, could do that. And then I thought to myself, I know absolutely nothing about publishing. (laughs) So how how could we start a publishing house and have the the leader ignorant, you know? (laughs) So I said to David, uh, well, let me write a book and see if I can understand the process. And that's really (laughs) what started it. I did a book of very short stories on uh, 20 years at CAS okay. that told about the people and the programs and sort of the evolution of things. And um, in that process, I understood more about fonts and, you know, cover design and uh, all the different types of editing and processing and packaging and shipping and all, all that stuff. Sure. Um, and so since then, we've we've put out seven books. Oh, wow. Uh, two two of them are mine, and the rest are other people who okay. I think have some incredible stories to tell. I've got five books in the queue. I just can't get 
done yet, is it edited <laughs> yet? But they're they're there, so more are on the way. That's amazing. And since 2014, I think the last report I got said we've sold 16,000 books. So well done. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, so so it is working. Obviously, we could sell a lot more, but it's working, and uh, we feel pretty good about it. And then that funding stream allows us to do some of the work we do in Detroit. Nice. That's wonderful. Well, well done on that. So one of your books is called Tiny Homes in a Big City. Is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Tell it me, is. Tell me about that. I, I want to understand the tiny home uh, trend here. I don't know much about it. Okay, so... So I've been at CAST 24 years, which um, my mother says should be calculated in dog years. So it's much, <laughs> much longer. <laughs> um, and over over time, we we have a great staff and wonderful volunteers who do hurricane work in, in terms of helping people who are homeless get situated, get uh, on medication if they need it, get off drugs if they need it, get mental health uh find a job, find an apartment, get a car, you know, back with their family, all those good things. Sure. But it, it it's almost like uh, creating a boomerang in in that uh, folks will uh, do better for a while. Okay. And and then they would come back. It's 6 months, a year, 2 years, it varies, but almost invariable they come back. And that is because they hit some sort of crisis in their life. Their, their car breaks down. They can't get to work. They lose their job. Okay. They they get sick. They can't afford the medicine. They lose days. They lose their job. Sure. Their hours get cut. They can't afford the utilities. They lose their house. I mean, it's 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 predictable stuff. And yet, um, I didn't have a way to solve it. Yeah. And so then, when my mom died, I got a house. Ah. Didn't need a house, but I got a house. Huh. And I thought for the first time in my life, that's the difference between middle class people and poor people in the United States. Absolutely. And that is we have things, we have assets that help us do better and to survive whatever crisis comes our way. Sure. If you're poor, you may have an income, but you don't have any safety net financially. Right. Right. So I began looking for a way to to help them obtain a safety net, and tiny homes came along. It was a natural. It was just a natural. Sure. So the the program, in short, is for seven years they rent the home. They pay a dollar a square foot, so between two fifty and four hundred dollars a month. Okay. They participate in a program of home ownership and financial coaching and volunteering once a month for for all seven years. Okay. And if they stay and they're compliant, then we give them the home. Okay. So, if you moved in and you used to be homeless, you moved in with everything you own in a garbage bag. Uh huh. Uh huh. And in seven years, you own a home that's worth forty or fifty thousand dollars. Amazing! Amazing! Yeah. So, it just changes the trajectory of their whole lives. Yeah. We've built thirteen. We have six more under construction right now. Wow. The plan is to build twenty-five for individuals and couples, and then to build some for families, uh-huh. and then to build out the commercial strip. Beautiful. And and we've had response from all over the world, probably because social me- me- media just went crazy on it. In, <laughs> in, in six months last year, we had 75 million views. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. So, so, well, uh, <laughs> you, you think it's a great story, but 
we've heard from everywhere. We've heard from Italy, Germany, the yeah. UK, Australia, Canada, Mexico, Peru, Bangladesh. I mean, uh, it's not the American dream. It's it's the human dream. Yes. Yeah. To, to have not only a roof, but to have economic mobility. Yes. And so that's why it's been uh, crazy successful and why the critics have come out of the woodwork. And really the book was it had two purposes. One was to answer the critics who really didn't know what the program was about because half the videos out there about it aren't accurate. Okay. But but people attacked us for doing it in Detroit, doing it with poor people, doing it with homeless people. Um, <laughs> they predicted they'd be crack houses and, you know, all kinds of nonsense. And they didn't even understand the program. So I wanted to explain it. The other thing is that people all over the United States especially wanted to replicate it. And sure. so we wanted to put in enough information for them to figure out whether it would work in their town or their city. Sure. And so people have been coming from all over to, to see them and to figure out if it is a good match for their location. Beautiful. That's really wonderful. It's really, you're right about that because I remember um, when the economy tanked and I actually was becoming a single mother of three young children and I remember thinking, you know, my house was upside down. I was self-employed. Yeah. It was not, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a perfect storm. And I, I sort of had a conversation with myself and said, okay, what is the worst thing that happens? So if I lose my house, if I have absolutely no business and I lose my house, mm-hmm. I move in with my parents. Now right. I was 37 and I had three young children. That was not my right. dream, but it right. wasn't sure. on the street. So there was that safety net. So that if the worst happened, I still had a roof mm-hmm. over my head and absolutely. Um, you know, if I if I couldn't afford food, my parents would provide it until I could. And thank God yep. I didn't get there, but it was it it helped talk me off the ledge because I knew that the worst wasn't the worst. And so you're absolutely right about that difference. That safety net um is so important and something that we as a collective humanity need to think about, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sorry to hear you went through it, but well, it it helped you have empathy for it anyway. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and and it made me really value um, that safety mm-hmm. net and how how precious it is. So and thank um, God you got good parents. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll make yeah. sure they hear mm-hmm. this episode for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, anyway, you know, I could. I, there's so many questions I want to ask you, but we are running out of time, and I would be remiss if I didn't spend a minute or two on your incredible feat of running the Boston Marathon. So I have to hear a little bit about that. I mean, you've done so many amazing things. And then I noticed in your bio, you've finished not one, not two, but several Boston marathons. And I thought, oh my goodness, what can't this woman do? So tell me what that experience was like. It's not as glamorous as you think. First of all, (laughs) in Boston, you can run behind the pack without qualifying, which is what I did every time. I don't have time to go qualify for anything, but I have finished it. Great. Um, the, The first time, and I went to school in Boston, so I watched it for all three years while I was there and admired everybody who ran, but I'm not athletic and uh, <laughs> I wasn't inspired to do it necessarily. In my first church um, on the west side of Detroit, I was going to start what's called the Disciple Bible Study, which is a fairly intense look at the Bible. Uh-huh. Uh, you read it every day, then you come together as a group once a week, and so by the end of the year, you've done 80% of the Bible. And uh-huh. I had a 
group started for, for older people, and then I tried to get a young adults group started, and I went to one woman and said, I'd like you to join this Bible study. It's a big commitment, but it'll change your life. And she said, well, you know, you get paid to read the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> which which is true. I do, actually. Uh-huh. And I said, well, what do you want me to do that I don't get paid for that would be equally as challenging? And she said, run the Boston Marathon. Ah, Okay. And I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't that I wanted to. I just wanted to fill up my disciple Bible study class. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, why not? And so the first time I ran it, I think I was uh, beat out by many 80- and 90-year-olds. It was was slow going. Uh Um, I did it about five hours. It was ridiculous. Uh But then the next year I did it because I wanted to the next year, and I knew I could finish. Okay. And I shaved at least an hour off that second well time. Well done. That's just, great. just because the first time you're thinking, well, what if I fail? What if I, you know, you're watching people drop out on the side of the road <laughs> and then you know you can do it and it gives you such confidence that you didn't muster before. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm not running as much anymore. I'm older. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but. But it is a great experience, and Boston is a wonderful place to do it. That's so great. Because um, the crowds are so supportive. Yeah. Well, that's really impressive. I, I had to spend a little time on that. Ah, so. Thank you. <laughs> well, in any case, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you, Reverend Faith Fowler. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing yourself with our Make Meaning podcast and our listeners. And I wonder if, um, before we sign off, you have any last words of wisdom for people who are out there searching for their purpose, looking for meaning in the work that they do? Yeah, so, um, no, I just believe in figuring out what your passion is, uh-huh. what your dream is. Hopefully it's ambitious ambitious, and bigger than your life. Yeah. Huh? And and then to throw yourself into it, it'll give you such joy because okay. um, life, life is short. Yeah. And uh, you want to do something that... Uh, has meaning, right? Absolutely. Make the most of it. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Reverend Faith Fowler, and I hope to be hearing more wonderful things about you in the days to come. Thank you, Lynn. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, and I've really enjoyed being here with you today. You can find the Make Meaning Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And I'd love it if you'd share our great conversations with all your people so we can add meaning wherever we go and whatever we do.